Hi, this is Pete Munoz, the drummer of Dallas's own Thunder Road, a tribute to Bruce Springsteen. And when I'm not playing Bruce's music, I'm listening to my good friend Jesse Jackson on Fet Lusting Bruce. Welcome to another episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson, and we are here tonight because a mom said to me, you really don't want to talk to me, you want to talk to my son. So joining me tonight is Craig. How you doing, Craig? I'm doing very well, Jesse. Thank you. Yeah, um, so... Um, your mom had written a really nice article about um, her son's love and her coming to grips with understanding your slash passion slash obsession with Bruce, correct? Uh, yeah, she, she has a weekly column in a paper in Northern Ontario, and um, that was one of her topics. We get, we get written about a fair, a fair bit. My wife and my son uh, feel your pain. I mention Linda and Chris often in the podcast, um, so I get that. And it was really nice. I, I really liked what she wrote. It's all, uh, and you know, I did reach out to her. I said, "Hey, you know, do you want to be on the podcast?" And she's like, "No, I really think you want to talk to my son, not me." So uh, thanks for joining me. No problem. So, Craig, tell me a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself to the listeners, and we'll start our Springsteen story. Uh, well, I'm uh, – do you want to start with my Springsteen experience or who I am? Just who you are. Introduce yourself first, then we're right. going to talk a little about your growing up, your musical background, and then we'll get into Bruce. Sure. I'm a um, – my uh, early to mid-50s, I'm an executive producer for a, a nature channel – I've worked in television since 1989, um, first in sports, and then I worked for Discovery Channel in Canada, and then was independent. And right now, I'm an executive producer of uh, nature content. Oh, interesting. uh, Yeah, it's a good job. I'm a father of two boys, 12 and 8. My wife, uh, Nancy, and I grew up in the same town, but didn't meet until we had both moved away from Thunder Bay, Ontario, on top of Lake Superior, to... uh, Toronto, and to go way back, I was born in the USA, even though I've mostly grown up in Canada. Oh, okay. So I'm a dual citizen. Ah, very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm fascinated. How did you get into the TV biz? And then we'll get into the other stuff. But that's that seems like a really fun. And why nature documentaries? 
Well, I didn't set out to uh, make nature documentaries. Um, when I was in high school, my best friend and I used to do the announcements for the school. And the announcements weren't just going up and reading, you know, there's a book club meeting or anything like that. Yeah. We produced full stories, voices, little comedic skits with music. I had to carry a big, heavy reel-to-reel about a mile and a half from the school home, and we'd be crowded around the speaker, uh, you know, getting the reel up to speed and dropping needles on record albums and all of those things to make them. It wasn't as easy as it was today, and I really, really enjoyed that. And I was uh, a pretty good writer. So I thought I wanted to get into the, the media. I thought it would be reporting. So I went away to school, and I studied uh, communications and English literature, and uh, then I got a business degree on top of that, and uh, developed a big love of sports. And somebody I knew from school brought my resume in to a a channel in Canada called TSN, the Sports Network. It's the Canadian equivalent of ESPN. Absolutely. You know, parts of it. So I went. I got a job there, and I started watching sports and ended up producing the Canadian version of Sports Center. And when Discovery Channel came to Canada, I decided I wanted to try something a little different. My dad's a fisheries research scientist, and I, I enjoy science. Um, and back in those days, that's what Discovery Channel did a lot of. So I went to work for the first daily science news show, and uh, that was a, a lot of fun. And uh, it started producing different types of uh, science documentaries, and then went independent, and my favorite bosses from Discovery Channel and TSN started their own company, and they had four channels, and I went on to become the director of production and was in charge of everything we produced there, and I mean, it, it's... I talk about it pretty quickly, but that's uh, that goes back to you know 1989. But I love telling I love telling I love telling stories. That, that's my favorite thing. That is awesome. Um, very cool. Well, talk about growing up. Um, so you were born in the USA. When did you guys move to Canada or back to we Canada? Can- we moved to Canada. Well, it was it was to Canada. It was never back to Canada. Um, my parents are from Michigan. My older brother, I have two brothers, an older one and younger one, was born in Michigan, and my dad went to get his Ph.D. at the University of Minnesota, where my younger brother and I were born, and then we moved back to Michigan. But as a fisheries research scientist, he got a job up in Thunder Bay. Uh, he studies uh, walleye, which is the number one commercial fish, and he could got a job where he could afford to buy a house, so we moved from Ann Arbor, Michigan, all the way up to Thunder Bay in June 1971. And it was a big, big uh, shock for me. And you wouldn't think there's a big difference in culture, but there was enough. And it was in 1971. Uh, How old were you, you then? Young, I was eight years old. Okay. And when you're a young American, you're taught that people love Americans and Americans are the best, and it just wasn't so. There was a, it was during the Vietnam War, uh, the United States didn't have the best name, so and in Thunder Bay at the time, it was after the 60s, so there was awareness of racial um, of the need for racial equality, but certainly didn't see people didn't see a white kid from Michigan as someone who was entitled to that kind of thing. People didn't like Americans, and that came through loud and clear. And for me, it was a it was a chance to uh, experience being 
labeled as something just by where you're from. I wouldn't call it uh, racism the way a lot of people have experienced, but it certainly was a way to be known as an outsider, and that was a very informative experience for me. You know, Craig, um, I my dad, uh, I was born in Louisiana. My dad was in the Army, so we moved around a lot. Um, you know, I, I, I spent some time in Germany, Kentucky, and Louisiana, and, and even though my dad kept getting stationed in the same places, um, I went to eight different schools um, during my, um, or 12 different schools during my first eight years of school, and then, um, so I, I, I was the new kid a lot, and so I, I understand a little bit what you're talking about. But then fast forwarded to, gosh, um, maybe um, 20, 2009, 2010, somewhere around that, uh, the company I was working for at the time purchased a competitor and they had a small call center in Winnipeg, Canada. And I spent time up there and it was very interesting the first time i was at um what the u.s would call veterans day uh armistice day up there and with the poppies everywhere and this whole anti-war feeling you know uh, and and not in a crazy 60s hippie way just this true you know asking for a better life and and they were a little bit suspicious of the American guy coming to run the, you know, kind of run their center. So I can imagine being eight or nine and all of a sudden you're the new kid and you're not just the new kid that was in Kentucky and now in Louisiana. You're in a whole other world. Yep. Yeah, it's um, you definitely felt like or at least I definitely felt like I didn't belong there. Yeah. Um, what did you now? Was music a part of helping you feel connected, or the family bonding together, or was it, you know, books? Uh, comic books is what made my universal. Um, I, I I always had comic books when I moved, so they were always my friends, and I could always talk Superman and Batman to people, you know, that I met or Star Trek. <laughs> Yeah, well, listen, I was a, I was a com- I was a Marvel kid, but I was definitely a big comic book kid at the time, and uh, I did get into Star Trek when I was about nine years old. And music was always a part of our house. My mom played piano. My dad's mother actually uh, played pianos for the silent movies. And when we would visit her, music was on all the time, and she was very curious about music. She loved. Jerry Lee Lewis, to this day, I always associate Jerry Lee Lewis with her. But, you know, she would play uh, the Rolling Stones. And, you know, this was in, she was born in the 10s, so she would have been in her uh, 50s, 60s. Uh, and she was listening to very contemporary music. I remember when she came to Thunder Bay, she went out to buy a Susie Quattro album. And somebody asked her, oh, is this for your grandson? She goes, oh, no, this is for me. And she listened. When she died, we went through a record collection, and there was uh, Otis Redding and the Village People. Um, So going to her house, you heard a lot of different music, and it was 
it was really, really interesting and really opened your ears. In our house, uh, because we were from Ann Arbor, we listened to a lot of Motown. We loved Motown. My dad liked um, oh Doug Kershaw. He loved he loved classical music. He loves uh, still loves Strauss. We listened to a lot of Strauss, and there were some operettas. My mom listened to Tom Jones. Loved Tom Jones. So that's the kind of stuff that was in our in our house. Um, Blood, sweat, and tears. I remember listening to a lot of so music was on a lot. We were interested in music, um, and it became part of what I did. I remember the first album I bought was uh, Ray Charles' album, and I remember buying it at the supermarket in Grand Rapids, Michigan, out of his bin for five bucks with money that had been given to me. And when we'd go visit our grandmother, she would take us out and buy an album. I remember I bought Meet the Beatles. That's the first one that I had that she bought for me. So music has always been there. Uh, I took music in high school. Um, I had individual lessons, was in the youth orchestra, uh, was in a high school musical, uh, was in a band in high school and sang a little bit. We had a Blues Brothers tribute band right when John Belushi died and did that for a summer. And that was a lot of fun. So music's always been a part of me. But once I got busy with school and particularly working, which became all-consuming, trying to get ahead and television uh it slid a little bit so i don't play an instrument now like i used to but i was informed and uh it's you know a big part of my daily life that's that's really cool um you know and elton john's greatest hits was the first eight track i bought um in fact it was uh you know one of the things that's going around in facebook is you know list the 10 albums you that were significant to you as a teenager and um i i had to picture in my mind the eight track case that i kept in the car because almost everything i had i graduated high school in 77 so you know eight tracks was how i grew up listening Mm -hmm. to music though my mom of course and my parents had all these great albums and every once in a while i'll go visit my mom and i'll go through the her albums and i will just you know, marvel at the. She has tons of Fats Domino and Bobby Darin and all these great. Um, you know, even though there were a lot of country music, she also had that early rock and roll and southern rock that she just loved. Yeah, we had the eight tracks. My grandmother, my dad's mom, had a huge collection of seventy eights, which my dad still has. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's mm-hmm. very cool. Um, my someone uh, asked the other day because my mom still uh, lives in Louisiana and goes garage selling fairly often on weekends and she always is so happy when she finds a Bruce Springsteen album or um, they found the other day um, the the live set that was cassettes and it was in the box, and it had the original cassettes. And and there and they, she was like, I don't know if they'll play. I said, it doesn't matter. I have everything on digital. I just love owning these. These are great. Mm-hmm. So tell me how you found Bruce. Well, my older brother listened to Bruce Springsteen when I was in high school. And I uh, had a nodding familiarity with it. Um, but it hadn't. it took a while for it to catch me. And I think I think you need to live a little bit before you can really get it. 
um, I think you need a, a broken heart and need to be a little kicked around before it really seeps in. And it was uh, 1984, so Born in the USA came out, and I was home for the summer from university. So my brother, younger brother and I, Scott, we went out and picked up the album and listened to it and really liked it, really liked it. Um, so we went out shortly afterwards, and I bought Born in the USA, I'm sorry, Born to Run, and he bought Darkness on the Edge of Town, and we started listening to that. And it was listening to Darkness on the Edge of Town, particularly Badlands, when it just opened up for me. It, that song was the first time I've ever heard anything that said, this is exactly how I feel about my life. You know, that's fascinating because as we're talking about, I'm going through lists of albums that came out in 75, 76, 77, 78 to remind myself of, you know, possible albums I'm not thinking of. And, um, you know, when I'm seeing these Bruce albums and I can actually remember seeing either Time or Newsweek at the barbershop, you know, the, one of the covers. And as a kid who was born on Top 40 Radio, I, I didn't, like, I'd never heard of this guy. Um, and and I, I've never heard it mentioned that way, but I think you've really said something. You, you have to have a little mileage, right? There, I, 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 I like how you put that. There's a little bit of pain or you, you've lived. Um, I, I often – I'll visit with a friend of mine and I'll talk about a lot of times Bruce's female uh, characters have a past. And he says, yeah, he says they, they've always seemed to have lived a little. And, you know, they will talk about their children or something, and, and that's neat. Um, Craig, we often have the oldest sibling on the podcast with us, and they talk about having the responsibility of influencing their younger siblings, and then I've had my fair share of the younger siblings all talking about the older brother or sister kind of influencing. But I do not remember someone specifically being the middle child. So you're kind of – you did both, didn't you? You were influenced and you were influencing. Well, I don't, I don't think that really happened that way. Okay. Um, you know, I was – when I was in high school, I was very unusual in my music tastes uh, because I kind of was getting into music through band a little bit. I liked jazz a lot. And uh, then I really got into blues. Um, you know, we liked comedy, and we saw the Blues Brothers, and that music really twigged me, and then I started digging in. And, you know, then I heard Muddy Waters and B.B. King. And that's when I went, okay, that's the stuff I like. That was the first big, you know, aha moment for me. Um, there was an album, I don't think it's out anywhere else, but if you could find it on vinyl, called B.B. Uh, King Live on Stage or Live on Stage B.B. King. It's, uh, remember how in the albums you used to be able to be able to drop your needle between tracks? Yeah. Except on live albums. So it would be right. all one smooth cut. This yeah. is all one smooth cut, and the connective tissue 
was women's screaming. And wow. uh, he had that, it was a young 50s-ish BB King, and he had that high ringing tenor, and it was just so thrilling and electric. And uh, that's really where I got hooked into that. And my younger brother, I think he thought it was okay, but he didn't follow that. My okay. older brother was very much into hard rock. So it was on like Fog Hat and uh, Deep Purple. I didn't follow that so much. So um, I don't think I influenced or really was influenced, but I will say with my younger brother, Scott, and I, we came to a lot of musical things together. So we were about two years apart and pretty close. And so when something would happen, you know, a Bowie album would come out, we'd get it, we'd listen to it, we'd talk about it, we'd put it on a cassette and uh, play that around. So, you know, we would come to these things together. You know, my younger brother and I both came to Springsteen together about that time. Uh, do you remember the first time you went and saw him perform live? As a matter of fact, I do. And it was uh, it, because I grew up in Thunder Bay, it didn't seem like there would be a lot of opportunity. I was going to school in Windsor, but, you know, you don't have any money. And even the idea that you can get a ticket seemed unbelievable and in 1984 all those stadium shows were selling out and i remember uh, my younger brother went down to toronto scott went down to toronto and saw him at exhibition stadium in one of the huge concerts i was so jealous and i remember that uh, he was playing up at the silver dome when i was going to school in windsor and we didn't think we were going to get any tickets so we went to see a baseball game and uh, go see the tigers and uh, we found out the next day we released 5,000 tickets and somebody had a car we could have gone so in the back of my mind, uh, the next opportunity that came up, I was going to take it. And I was still at university. Now I was getting my second degree. Fortunately, I was still in uh, Windsor at the time. And uh, we knew he was going on tour with Tunnel of Love. And so I had the Detroit radio stations on. And uh, they announced the Tunnel of Love tour. And as soon as I heard it, I grabbed my uh, my proof of citizenship, and uh, actually, I, this was they sell they were selling this in Windsor. So we went down and were prepared to camp out overnight to make sure we got tickets to Tunnel of Love. And they had a wristband thing, so we didn't have to camp out overnight. But we were ready to camp out overnight, and we got tickets behind the stage for the March 29th, 1988 show of the Tunnel of Love tour, and. Uh, you know, the thing about those seats behind the stage is you're actually really close and you kind of see the show from his perspective. So, um, it was just amazing. Like I, I heard about the great shows and we had bought the live box set, but there was uh, nothing like when the lights go down and you see him come out and you actually realize you're in the same room with this guy, which for people who grew up in bigger cities and seen these things, um, I don't know if you can relate to that so much, but the idea that this person you'd followed and studied and who'd reached out and touched you and reflected your life. And, uh, you know, in your early to mid twenties was kind of informing you about places you were going to go, but weren't there yet. But to see him walk out there, um, was a real magical little moment. 
you know, the only thing I can compare it to, I'm a big Tiger fan. And when I went down and saw the Detroit Tigers for the first time, and you realize you're in this place where this happens, um, it's uh, there's a very uh, communal feeling that you feel part of something very big that you had just been led into. So that was the feeling I had of that. And I remember he came out and he, they had the um, sort of the biggest stagey thing he's really done in his career where they came out and bought the tickets right? and he came right into Tunnel of Love. And I love that song. Um, and the place just opened up. And uh, it was a really, really great concert. He had an intermission in it, which I wasn't used to. And uh, he really played the ups and downs of it until he, about um, a little more than halfway through, he played She's the One, and then it just took off. It was just like an assault on your musical senses from there to the end, and he played, he went on just after eight and finished right about midnight, and, you know, about midnight he's doing, you know, guitar swirlies on the floor with the lights up, and it just, uh, you know, you come out the other side, and you've been someplace you've never been, and it won't ever be the same way again. It was pretty amazing. You know, um, we say this often, and we're not the only people, but two kinds of people, people that go to see a Bruce show and go, wow, that was long, <laughs> or, well, that was a pretty good concert, and then the rest of us go, oh, my goodness, I can't wait till I see him again, you know? Yeah. Um, that was really beautiful and, and really – you painted a wonderful picture. Um, the, I think the closest that came to me, um, I discovered right after graduating high school, I discovered Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys and just became obsessed with their music and was buying everything I could find. And I was from a small uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana. Um, you know, maybe we'd get Willie Nelson. You know, um, my first concert was a Foghat ZZ Top concert. Um, it, you know, we'd get a lot of John Denver and, you know, mm-hmm. just country music artists. They're very mainstream. And uh, the Beach Boys, um, I had been a fan like three or four years, and they toured in Beaumont, Texas, which was, or Lafayette, Louisiana, which is about an hour and a half away, and I went and got tickets, and I was just, I couldn't believe I was in the room hearing these guys that I had listened to their, you know, A-tracks and cassettes so much, Um, so I I totally get what you're doing, you're saying, and it is just, um, you just can't it is something magical and you're there and especially with Bruce doing such a everything out there and he's so emotionally connected to the audience. Um, it's pretty crazy. Um, before I ask, I want to put this out there. I, I do not believe the amount of times you've seen Bruce Springsteen is a fair barometer of how big of a fan you are. Uh, there are people I know that are massive fans that have seen him never. And then I know there are fans that eh, are just kind of casual that may have seen him a hundred times because they live in the East Coast. So how many times, Craig, have you seen him? That's the question, right? It, it is, it's a funny little barometer. I've seen him 17 times. Okay. And... Uh, 
um, it's a funny number. I know for the hardcore Springsteen fans, that's hardly it at all. For the people who uh, aren't kind of a really big fan of anything, it seems like a lot of numbers. It's uh, it's basically the most I could have seen him right. without, you know, uh, betraying family dollars or uh, using up all my vacation time or anything like that. And uh, it, there's a few more times I would like to have snuck in there, but um, – it's a pretty comfortable number for me. So, Craig, I already can tell you are a wonderful storyteller because I love that phrase, betraying the family money. Um, I, I had the same experience. Um, you know, when we moved to Louisiana, we moved uh, to Dallas. Uh, it was 86. Uh, we had our son in 89. Um, there were – he wasn't touring as much, and just when he would come in town – because I was a casual fan, I certainly had bought, you know, I if you had asked me, am I a fan? Absolutely, you know, the box set and Tunnel of Love and this, but you know, I just had not a chance to see him till 2002, um, and I my I talked about if we won the lottery, I would fly down to Australia for these latest shows, and my lovely bride Linda goes. Why? I mean, you saw him five times last year. Why would you want to fly halfway around the world? You know he's going to tour again in the U.S. And I said, the sports analogy is when you miss an extra point in football, you chase that point the rest of the game. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm chasing Springsteen shows because of all the shows I missed earlier that uh, if I have a chance to go, I want to go. Without putting my job at risk or my uh, bank account at risk, I want to go. Um, yeah. So I, I totally get what you're saying. And I should qualify that. You know, my wife has never even come close to saying, I don't think you should go see that show. She's been very encouraging and understanding and loves to go to the shows herself. Yeah. She's not standing in line to get in the pit. She's not going to Buffalo or Detroit or Ottawa to yeah. see him. But, uh, you know, she gets it, and she's, uh, you know, she's never even hinted at maybe you shouldn't do this. She's, uh, she gets it. That is a wonderful story. Uh, my lovely bride um, puts up with it and is uh, happy. She, um, you know, she bought me last year. I had Pittsburgh tickets, and then without telling me, she bought tickets for me to go to see him in Louisville for the River Tour, um, and. We were just talking. She says, okay, I have the itch. The next time he's touring, I think I need to go see him, you know, if, if you and Chris will allow me. Um, so, yeah, I, I get it. It's just, um, you know, it. there is just always you, you trying to manage real life along with trying to see as many Bruce shows as you can. Um, the only Bruce Springsteen yeah. intervention – my wife has had with me. Yes. Um, was when the um, uh, when the uh, box set, uh, the tracks box set came out. Yes. And you know that's just a lot of music. It and is. When I I want to really learn the songs and uh, sort of internalize them and figure them out and know what they're about. And uh, you know the days before iPods. 
Um, we didn't have a CD player in the car, and I wasn't putting them all on tape. I don't think I used a Walkman anymore. So the only place to really hear them was for me to play them in our living room in our CD carousel. And so I was, I wasn't just, I was studying them, you know. Yeah. And at one point, Nancy, like she sat me down at the table and said, listen, Craig, you know I like Bruce Springsteen. You know I like a lot of Bruce Springsteen. I like to listen to a lot of Bruce Springsteen. You have to take those CDs out. <laughs> and I was like, okay. okay. Um, I don't know them yet, but I, I hear what you were telling me. Well, the closest I get is, and, and my wife is a saint, um, but every once in a while she'll, I'll say, hey, you know what's interesting? And she goes, is it a Springsteen fact? I'll just, I'll let it move. She goes, no, 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 say it. <laughs> so, And so what we've started doing is we borrowed some comedians. Um, I don't remember the comedian, but I am stealing his line. He, um, it was something like someone told us something in a fact or a story, and the comedian says, I read about that, and who gives a Flip magazine? And um, except flip is a different word. Yep. And and so I now say, hey, you know what I was reading and who gives a flip magazine? And and she, that is our code for I know you don't care about this, but I have to tell this story, and you can just shake your head and nod and we'll move on. And every once in a while she'll go, no, no, I don't think that was in Who Gives a Flip magazine. That actually was an interesting point. It's a good phrase. Yeah. Um, so you've already talked a little bit about Badlands, but is there other albums or songs that have meant a lot to you during the Springsteen journey? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, and you know, it's different ones at different times. That whole Darkness album, I feel very close to. Um, might have been, I, I was working in a grain elevator at the time, so things like Factory really um, stuck close, and, you know, uh, the ideas in uh, Racing in the Street of people who uh, are unhappy with their lives and they're looking for a place to take that unhappiness. Uh, you know, you, we saw some of that, um, but at different points, different things. The uh, the friend that I told you about in uh, in high school is my best friend, closer to me than my brothers. We were best friends at each other's best man at each other's wedding. In uh, 2005, he died, and uh, it was a surprise to all of us, and it really shook us all up. And within a month. I was at one of the Bruce Springsteen Devils and Dust tours. And he sang Bobby Jean. And it was like it's the first time I heard it. And uh, when I became friends with Dave in high school, um, we were both in grade nine when we knew each other. And I was a skinny guy with glasses. And he was the cool guy in the jean jacket and shades. They were prescription shades. But he didn't say much, but he was definitely the cool guy, the good-looking guy. And then we were in a study class together, and we really got to be friends. And, you know, there were kids, older kids who called me behind my back, Clark Kent, because, 
you know, I kind of look sure. like Clark Kent with glasses and dark hair and stuff like that. And I don't think anybody really saw the me that I thought I was until, until I got to be friends with Dave. And I really felt like Dave saw me and not just what I look like. And, you know, that's a heady thing. And we both have talked, uh, have talked over the years how our friendship changed each other and brought out parts of each other that would not have been brought out otherwise. He was a quiet guy. He was the loudest quiet guy or the quietest loud guy you'd mm-hmm. ever meet. But um, I think the fact that I was so outgoing gave him permission to do things that, I mean, he probably wouldn't have done announcements otherwise. Uh, he got really involved in theater arts, and you know we were very forward. And he was listening to things like the Rolling Stones, and uh, and you know I've never been burdened with being cool, but I he at least pulled me out of a place where I could have been perceived as like really nerdy. I wasn't too bad. I mean I was captain of the football team, but I was also first clarinet in the band, right? So somewhere in there. Um, so when he, so when I heard Bobby Jean, and it was, you know, nobody's ever seen me the way you did. Um, boom, boom, like it was the faucets were on, and it was just, uh, I wish I could have called you one last time, and uh, you know that was a moment that really, really, really hit with me. I would say. Uh, just from going through that kind of thing, Lonesome Day uh, really, really, really appeals to me. That's one that means a lot to me when I hear it. Um, I think the Magic album is really, really one of his best pieces of work. I don't think it gets the attention it deserves. Uh, you know, I told you I studied English Lit in university, and right. one of the classes that I had was Ulysses, James Joyce's Ulysses. And I couldn't, have, I couldn't have got through the book without the class. Uh, it was great. We would read a chapter, someone would present, and we'd all talk about it. It really gave you a chance to get in depth. And I remember reading that Joyce stuff and just being blown away how we could have one set of words that said two different things. Yeah. It had a narrative, but an entirely different subtext underneath it. And I thought with Magic, the way he created songs that were very much about the conflict in a personal relationship, but at the very same time about uh, the conflicts that was, the nation was going through. I think it's his, like, just literally speaking, his best piece of work. I totally agree. In fact, um, you know, I think it's amazing when you think of and I'm a big fan of Wrecking Ball as well. And to think about, you're almost 35, 40 years into your career, and if you say you're going to write something that is in its own way just as significant as Darkness or Born to Run, you know, that's pretty heady stuff. But, you know, there is magic in carrying the message he does and the, the... not just the heavy stuff, but like girls in their summer clothes, and I'll work for your love. And there, there is a beauty to that album that I totally agree with you. Is something pretty special. Yeah, well, you know, um, I don't know where I heard it, but interested people are interesting people. Yes. And I think one of the reasons we're so fascinated by 
Bruce Springsteen's work is he is interested in what's going on. And yes. he's looking at it and thinking about it. Um, I remember reading an interview with Robert Plant. They were asking him why he wasn't going back with Led Zeppelin. And he was getting tired of that question. He said, do you know the reason the Eagles keep touring? Because Not because they need money. It's because they're bored. I'm not bored. Yeah. I don't think Bruce Springsteen is very bored. So he's always looking and thinking and bringing out something to say. And that's why... Uh, you know, I'll always be interested. I mean, even if the, even the songs that there are very few of them that I don't like as much, it's always worth digging in a little deeper. And you know, one example of that is uh, Mary Queen of the Supermarket. Boy, yeah. I got friends who hate that song. They hate that song. But once you dig into it, there's a couple things going on there, right? I mean, first of all, it's his Roy Orbison song, and yeah. it has all the tropes of a Roy Orbison song. But as you dig a little deeper. Like, it is really talking about the blasé superficiality of the abundance in our life that is kind of a narcotic that dulls us and uh, keeps us from looking at the beauty that can be right in front of us, but we don't even notice because we're swallowed up in everything else. You know, that's, uh, I had not thought of that, but I, I totally see that, and you know, there's there is a depth to his music, and you know, I always think of the line um, in Storytellers um, around Devils and Dust, and he talks about it and he says, you know, was I thinking this? Was I planning this? I don't know, but I know I was feeling it. You know, yeah. when he's explaining the lyrics, and um, what do you think of uh, the autobiography? Uh. I enjoyed reading it, um, and it was really nice to get things from his perspective. Um, I thought his first book was a little like his first album and that it was a little too wordy. I think okay. he was trying – he talked about trying to find his voice and his musicality, and I think he tried – my personal – I think he tried too hard. That's my personal okay. uh, take on it. I think if he had just written – written more from the heart about what was actually happening without trying to entertain us so much, I think there might have been, there might have been a more interesting book. Uh, I think he talked about certain things in general terms about how he felt about them, like his relationship with John Landau, and I really would have liked more specific stories that illustrated how he felt about them. So I thought it was a really good read. I, I went to the book signing in Toronto, which actually inspired my mom to write that column. Right. So I'm happy to have the book. I'm really happy to have the picture, um, and I'm happy I read it. But it kind of feels like a first book for Bruce. I thought the – I can't remember the author's name, the, autobi the biography that was just Bruce. I yeah. thought that was a little more illuminating okay. and had a little more insight. The, the one part I did like that he talked about uh, and the parts that he was forthcoming about were uh, – the disillusion of his first marriage. That, that's one thing that I always wondered about but never understood. Thought he, there's a lot of clarity there. I thought the relationships with his band uh, was a gray area that a lot of people had speculated about, but nobody really understood. I thought him writing about that was really, really uh, useful for us as fans and made me go, oh, yeah, I, I, I get that. Uh, I thought the best thing about the book is 
the way he talked about his mental health issues and the fact that um, he did talk about it and he wasn't embarrassed about it and that he went through this and here's somebody that everybody looks to and, you know, looks like the happiest guy in the world on stage, but he deals with stuff. And I think uh, it's really, 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 really important for people who are suffering to know that you can talk about it. Um, you can talk about it. I, you know, Craig, I totally agree with you. Um, I said that going into the book, I really, the two things I wanted was not because I wanted the dirt, but I wanted to understand the first marriage and the breakup of the band. And, um, and I felt like I got that. I also was a little surprised. I've always kind of half jokingly, half not, you know, you have this wonderful band backing you and, um, Niels, you know, little Steven, Clarence, when he was still with us, Patty, all have solo works and, you know, it's not uncomfortable for, it's not uncommon for another band to say, and now we're going to let the lead guitarist take a song. And it's always Bruce. Bruce sings lead. It is his show. And I was like, I wonder if that's, that's a little weird to me. After reading the book, it's very clear, you know, this is – he did not want he, – he appreciates the band, but this is his – he is the boss, truly, without any um, irony or a pun. It, it's his band. Well, he said it very well when he said, uh, you know, I didn't need uh, employees. I needed disciples. Yes. <laughs> and, it, you know, it really is the service of his work. And I think he said it very well. I don't, I'm not going to have the words exactly right. When he said, I laid it out so that it was clear. It may not have been popular, but it was clear, and everybody knew what they were dealing with. Yeah, and, and I love the scene, and I'm, I'm, I, I agree with you. I'm not going to quote it perfectly, but, you know, someone, I guess, was complaining about money. And he said, I want you to look up who's the highest play, highest paid blank in the industry. And he didn't, I don't think he mentioned the instrument because he wasn't trying to embarrass someone. No. And he said, and you will find it's you. <laughs> you well, actually what he said is go look in the mirror. Okay, if you want to yeah. see the highest paid person in your position in the industry, yeah. he's in the mirror. And, if you can do better, go ahead. Yeah, and so I, I, thought, you know, I liked that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he said that's how it works in the real world and they said, Well we have to what do we do what do we have to do with the real world? Yeah. Um so you can under, you can guess how uh I mean it wasn't hard to imagine when he talked about the stress of the role he played in people's lives yeah. wearing him down. Yes. Right. And I think after his uh you know, wanting to be a little more musically free and after the trauma he went through when his marriage fell apart when yeah. he realized I mean, for him, it seemed like he realized, here's a part of my life that I just can't get to work. Yeah. Um, that he needed to go away. He needed he needed his time in the desert, right? Yeah. He went to the it, desert it, for it. You know, and Craig, I, you know, Ton of Love has always been one of my favorite albums. And, I agree. And, and as you 
as you and I think this is an album that grows with you in your marriage, uh, at least in my opinion. Right. I've been married over 30 years. Uh, the joke is Linda and I've been married 32 years, 31 of them, the happiest years of our lives. Uh, <laughs> And it's not that we had one bin year. It was just, you know, there are times on a marriage where it is not good, no matter how much you love each other. And and I fascinated by that. Um, you know, I look, and I see, I don't see the man I want to be, and um, you know, all this different of sharing of his faults and how he he is firmly pushing putting the emphasis on his own failures in the marriage and and to talk about that very honestly in the book and about how I should be I have this beautiful wife sitting across from me and I just don't feel like I deserve it and it's not what it should be and that's that was very real and very um uh, honest and and I I found it very touching. Yeah, I got married when I was 35. Okay. And uh, I like to joke that I skipped the first marriage. <laughs> um, I like to go. I like to joke that I skipped the first marriage, and um, because I was really worried about making the right decision and not being in something that wasn't going to make me happy or that I would not be able to go through with. Yeah. So at our wedding, I think it was song number four, we played Tunnel of Love. Yeah. And uh, one of the bridesmaids said, that's a terrible song. That's about a marriage that isn't working. And I really think that's a song about having your eyes open in a marriage yeah. and understanding that, you know, this ride gets rough. And I think you got to learn to live with what you can't rise above isn't an admission of failure. It means that uh, you're taking this all in for whatever it's worth. So Linda and I got married um, in '84. So it was it was the day before my 25th birthday. I had made a joke. We dated four years before we got married, and I once complained that I didn't want to be 25 and unmarried. And so she made sure that our wedding day was the day before <laughs> I turned 25. And um, and we talk about that um, it's a lot of work, and it's also – it is sometimes it's 90-10, uh, and other times it's 10-90, and, but you just have to understand and have faith that it's going to all even out in the end and just you know have each other's back. Um, but it's hard, and, and we – I think that's – I think your statement about the tunnel of love and having your eyes open is really insightful um, because you know that um, life's going to deal you a lot of hardships. And if you can count on each other, you've got half the battle. But you just you – know, there are things, Craig, and we're going off on a little tangent, but I think it's true. There are times – statements stick with me and i i can remember i was at a the baptist church when i was in high school and the pastor uh preached a sermon uh based on after um with peter's going um jesus asking do you do you love me and telling peter then feed my sheep 
And the whole point was, um, the Reverend Skinner said that in the story was when Peter admitted, yes, I think I love you, but I love other things more, is when he says, God says, good, now that you're honest, we can build from that. And, mm-hmm. and that always stuck with me that, you know, once you get away from all the pretending and you admit, even if it, you admit something that's painful or maybe not flattering, okay, but now then that we've got the truth, this is where we can build a compromise or a relationship or what a, a plan. Well, I'll tell you the big eye-opener for me Yeah, was uh, – I produced a series called The Sex Files when I was at Discovery Channel. It's, it's sold all over the world. And uh, one of the shows I did was called, uh, it was about the science of sex. It was about sex versus love. Mm-hmm. And it was the relationship between the two. So I interviewed this couple out in San Francisco. They lived in Hawaii, but they'd come into San Francisco for the summer and, and rent a place. And they were on their second marriage, both of them. Uh, I believe one was a historian. One was a psychologist. So they didn't do a full scientific study, but they wrote a book about it, so they did some research for some insight. So I sat them down to talk about this, and the first thing I asked them about was the, the first group of people they interviewed for the book. They interviewed people who'd been married like 50 or 60 years. So they had automatically hived off all of the people who didn't make it. These are the people who make it, right? These are the people who had yeah. successful long-term marriages. And they said the first question they asked was, what is the key to your happiness? And they said, the number one answer they got was, happy. We're not happy at all. And I was married for three, four years at that point, and uh, that was another one of those boom moments. Yeah. Like, uh, this house is haunted and the ride is rough. Right. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how rough it is, but if I don't want to end up like that, I better pay attention. Yes. I better pay attention. And I, the, like, I am no expert on marriage um, at all. I've been married 19 years, but I would say, you know, my philosophy towards it, largely out of that sort of discovery, is it's got to be like gardening. It's like work. Nobody wants to do. Nobody wants to be working all the time. Right. But with gardening, you're tending to something that's important to you, and there's growth, and you're getting value out of it. So it's something that you have to put your care into, and you have to pay attention to, and you just can't have it over there, or things start to creep in. I want to talk a lot about, you know, my relationship with my wife, who I love and adore because it's yeah both of our relationships. But, you know, there's a tendency at some point to, especially when you're raising kids, that you end up running your business, the business of your lives, and you become business partners. And all of your effort goes into managing your finances and the house and the computer's got to get fixed and who's going to take care of the kids and can we get a babysitter and, uh, did I do the laundry this week? Am I picking this stuff up? Am I doing my fair share? I don't even care. I just need a break. And uh, that's an easy thing to fall into. My wife, I, I had a conference in Paris once, and my wife came over for the weekend, and i got to tell you, that was such a big shot in the arm for us, was yeah. just to have a little time to be in love with each other. And uh, we've 
ridden on the vapor trail of that for a long time, and we both agree we need more of it. But um, you know, find time for that. What's What's amazing, Craig is is um, Bruce and Bourbon is our version of Paris, um, two, 2012. Uh, my father had died at the end of 2011, and he was buried up in Kentucky at a veteran cemetery. And Lynn and I had talked about we had not gone on a vacation, just the two of us, and we could not remember. We had always gone with the kid or with another couple, and we had not gone by ourselves doing anything. And we came up with, um, I said, hey, Bruce Springsteen on Wrecking Ball, he's not coming anywhere close to Texas, but he's going to be in Cleveland. I said, why don't we drive up? We'll go through Kentucky. We'll see my dad's gravestone. We'll do um, some of the Kentucky bourbon trail that you really wanted to do. We'll go see. I have a friend who lives in Cleveland. We'll see the show. We'll go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We'll come back down. We'll finish the bourbon tour, and we'll go home. And Linda said, sold. And so I started walking so that I would be in better shape to do the tours, and she started listening to Bruce Springsteen music because she isn't a big Bruce Springsteen fan. And on the way up there, we would play songs, and she would Google the lyrics. And um, she says, I don't I don't understand what he says. I go, well, think of an instrumental. Just think of his voice as another instrument and just let the emotion of the song. And so we did that Bourbon and Bruce tour was our version of a second honeymoon. All of a sudden we realized, you know, after this many years of marriage, we still like hanging with each other. We still like talking to each other. We don't run out of things to say. Or if we do, it's a comfortable silence. And um, and so that was our version of Paris. And, and I will tell you, um, it continues to do that. And we find time to get out of town, just her and I, for that very reason, to kind of recharge the batteries. Well, listen, Bruce and Bourbon sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. All right, so I'm going to finish up because we've been talking almost an hour. I don't know. I, I don't know if anyone's asked you, but since you have a literary background, uh, does Mary get in the car on Thunder Road? Sorry? Yeah. End of Thunder Road. Uh, y- y- if mm-hmm. you get a chance, go back. Um, yep. Jay. Um, yeah, Jay had did. He teaches a course. He's a high school English teacher, and he he one of his classes is they break down Thunder Road as a poem, comparing it to The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Right. And at the very end, they ask the question, does Mary get in the car? Huh. Never really thought about that. Let me put it to you this way. Does he even actually ask her? Oh, now that is a twist I've not heard. So... To me, that song is him even... He's thinking about it. I don't think he ever asks her. I think he's looking at her, and to him, this is just that dream. You know, to me, that's like an internal monologue of what he would like to say to this beautiful, haunted, kind of unattainable woman. You know, he likes the idea of the journey. How fascinating. that I've never had that answer, and I love it. 
So, okay, Craig, hopefully he's going to tour again. Are there any songs? Is Do you have a couple of wish lists of songs that you hope to hear him perform live that you haven't got to hear or have heard very rarely? Uh, the Yeah, the one that I'd really like to hear if he was out with the horns is um, his kitty's back. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, I'd really like to hear that with with the horns. I really love that song, but and I wouldn't want to hear it without the horns. But you know, you have these little conversations with yourself. You know, what what would I ask him to play? Um, would it be a popular one? Would it be an obscure one? With the horns, I'd like to hear Kitty's back. Um, you know, I'd also like to hear Man's Job again. I love the old '60s soul thing, and I think I don't think people realize that uh, Human Touch was his soul album, right? Straight up soul album. Uh, I'd like to hear Man's Job again. Nice, good. I'm pretty happy with whatever he plays. But you me know, too. That would be yes, good. very good. Craig, this was a blast. I hope you had as much fun as I did. Um, I thank really, you so really good, much. Jesse. Thank you for taking the thank you for taking the time to talk to me about Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Um, if someone wants to reach you, how can they? If anybody wants to get a hold of me, they can uh, send me a message on Twitter. My my Twitter address is at Craig Colby one, and it's the number one at C R A I G C O L B Y one. And I am at Jesse Jackson DFW. Um, if you want to be on the podcast to talk about Bruce and all that implies, send us an email at setlustingbruce at gmail.com. We do have a Facebook page. Check that out. And if you could go to iTunes to rate and review the podcast, I would be so grateful. It really is the best way for us to find new listeners. Craig, this was a blast. We're going to end with talk about a dream. Try to make it real. You wake up in the night with a fear so real. You spend your life waiting for a moment that just don't come. Well, don't waste your time waiting. Badlands, you got to live it every day. Let the broken heart stand as the price you got to pay. We'll keep pushing till it's understood and those bad lands start treating us good. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, listeners. We'll talk to you soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.